Welcome to Crosswalk Radio, the Bible teaching radio ministry of Crosswalk Church in Daytona Beach, Florida. Take your Bibles and join us today in the book of Romans as Pastor Mitch Pridgen continues his verse-by-verse teaching through this book. Romans chapter 2, verses 25 through 29. Then we're going to pause and we're going to come back and we're going to go into chapter 3. In verse 25, Paul writes, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Pause for a moment. I don't know whether when when you hear that being read to you and probably over the multiple times that you have read that as you've gone through your scriptures, if you stop and think, that's really, it, it, it may seem on the surface, if you don't pay close attention to it, as being um, not all that significant. But in reality, it is tremendously significant. And it is extremely important that it is interpreted properly. But as you recall from our uh, time together last Lord's Day, in this chapter, that is in chapter 2, the apostle makes a transition where in chapter 1 he's speaking primarily to the church in general, those who are Gentiles as well as Jews. And then in chapter 2 he transitions to speaking primarily to the Jewish members of the congregation of the church of Rome. And so now he's speaking to the Jew in the church there. And after addressing the matter of hypocrisy, which is what he does in the first first verses of chapter 2, in verse 17 through 24, he he goes, as we said, after the most significant stronghold of the Jew. And I use that word intentionally, the most, or that phrase, the most significant stronghold. In fact, John Murray, in his very lengthy commentary on the book of Romans, quotes another author by the name of Haldane saying this. And I remember quoting this to you last week. Haldane writes, quote, The apostle now pursues the Jew into his last retreat and proceeds to strip them of the last refuge to which they prided themselves, their elusive trust in possession of circumcision. End of quote. Now, perhaps the Jew, looking back in perspective here and contextually, perhaps the Jews that were reading Paul's letter, having the letter read to them, could not argue with Paul in regards to his, what I might add, might say dressing them down, so to say, in regards to their hypocrisy when he says something like, why do you condemn stealing when you yourself steal? (laughs) 
Why do you condemn adultery when you yourself commit adultery? Why are you looking down proverbially your nose to others when you yourself are guilty of committing the same things? Convictions probably all over them. And as would be the case with the Jewish believer, when they could not argue with their own hypocrisy, more than likely what they do is they would run to their refuge of saying, yes, but we are God's chosen people. We are God's elect people. And so they couldn't argue with Paul about their hypocrisy. So they must have, been, what they must do now is run to that elusive possession of the mark of the covenant, which was the circumcision. Now, Paul was well aware of what they were arguing, having contended with those of the circumcision party that we see in Acts in his ministry as they pursued him. And his appeal was to their special status of God's people and the sign of circumcision. However, Paul makes some very important points. The the crux of Paul's argument is this. Circumcision, this is what is important. Circumcision is only of any value when followed through with obedience to the law. That's important. That circumcision is only of value when it is followed through with obedience to the law. And if the circumcised breaks the law or break the law, circumcision then suddenly loses its value. It is just what it, it's just what Paul says. It, at, at that point, it remains only an outward sign of something, an ethnic sign. Circumcision was intended to be accompanied by obedience to the law of God, to the things that God had commanded His people, to the law that He had given them. In other words, physical circumcision is not a license to disobedience. And we see that throughout Jewish history. They would say, for example, we are God's covenant people, yet they would commit acts of disobedience continually, continually, and continually. A Jew, though physically circumcised, that continually breaks the law, he has been given by God through Moses, proves that his circumcision is nothing but an outward sign. And then Paul turns the table on the circumcised by stating which, by the way, would come as a major shock to them, to his readers, especially his Jewish readers. He comes with this shocking statement, the uncircumcised. I mean, think about, go back to your Old Testament lessons as a child in Sunday school. When the Jews wanted to slander someone, what would they call them? The uncircumcised. When David goes out to address Goliath, he calls him, you uncircumcised Philistine. I mean, that was, a, that was a, a, a slander, a slur on someone. In other words, you're just a pagan, non-covenant person with God. And now Paul, as if he hasn't already got their attention, comes in and says something to his readers. He says to them, the uncircumcised that are obedient actually condemn you who have the circumcision and are not obedient. And so now he's making that powerful statement. That the uncircumcised who obey the law, how do they obey the law if they've not been given the law? Go back to a few weeks ago. How do the uncircumcised obey the law even though they have not been given the law? It has been written where? The work of the law has been written where? On their hearts. 
God has given every man that conscience. And so when that man who obeys that conscience, that moral compass that God has given him, that law, the work of the law that God has written on his heart, and they obey that, Paul says, those are the ones, their works of obedience. Even though they are uncircumcised in the flesh, their work of obedience stand in judgment or condemnation of your disobedience. Actually condemn those who have been given the law and circumcision, yet live in violation of it. And as I said, this would have shaken the Jewish reader to the very core. Look back real quickly at verse 27. He says, Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code of circumcision but break the law. That's powerful. Figuratively speaking, Paul is saying that the obedience of the uncircumcised will stand as evidence on the day of judgment to condemn the disobedient. Now in verses 28 and 29, the last two verses of that that I read to you a moment ago, Paul delivers what could rightfully be considered the death blow to the misguided confidence that these sinning Jews may have held in their ceremonial and ethnic status. Paul destroys any confidence, any assurance in a religious ceremonial act. He brings circumcision to a whole new level. And as I was writing that, I wrote in parentheses in my notes here, I said to a whole new level, but in reality what Paul does is brings circumcision back to what I believe to be its actual intention in the beginning. So he brings it back to its intended level. Paul argues that Real circumcision is not merely outward and physical, but it is inward and spiritual. Paul is not denying the physical act of circumcision. No, he's not denying that as an ethnic sign, certainly. That which is to be carried out ceremonial as a religious rite, certainly it is, identifies them as a covenant people. But he's saying the real circumcision is a circumcision that is not just outward, but one that is inward, a spiritual, of spiritual significance. His point is that it has, has no spiritual significance except that of a sign and seal to which it represents. The true circumcision is the work of grace and the heart by the Holy Spirit. Every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ has experienced this type of circumcision. Male and female. Every single believer has experienced this with God. They work of the sovereign grace of God in their life by the Holy Spirit, the circumcision of the heart. It's not by the letter, but rather a sovereign work of the Spirit on the heart of a man. And what happens is the man, speaking generically of, of humanity, the man, man and woman are stripped of all confidence whatsoever in their flesh when they come to Christ. And that's really what circumcision was meant, to say, was meant to portray. So the obedient believer, regardless of circumcision of the flesh, is truly the circumcised. It is, as Paul says, a matter of the heart. So now the Jewish reader has been confronted with his own faulty assurance based upon an outward ceremonial rite. He's been dressed down for his hypocrisy and now he's dressed down for his confidence or assurance in merely a religious, ritual, ceremonial rite. 
And he's been confronted with the reality that if he has not experienced the circumcision of the heart marked by obedience to the law, he is not, from God's perspective, considered a true covenant person. Now, there's a balance to this. Because now if you just stop there and didn't balance it, and we will balance this as we go into this, you would think that Paul is advocating what? A types of work righteousness. That somehow a man's righteous standing before God is based upon his ability to obey the law, to be faithful to the law. And, and Paul knows that, it, that our absolute, our obedience to the law, if we try to do it in our own strength, is absolutely impossible. But that does not negate that we are, in fact, when the, when the Word of God tells us to be holy, for I am holy. I mean, does he mean that when he writes it? When the Word of God says that we are to be holy because He is holy, does God mean that He does God mean He anticipates us being holy? Certainly. Does God know our own our inability to fulfill that command to be holy? Absolutely. So we not we do not have to walk this alone. I have often people come to me and say, you know, Pastor, I I, I might think about being a Christian, but I just don't think I can live that life. And I go, you're right, you can't. And the bottom line is, I can't either. In fact, I don't know of a single, single person that is alive that is walking in faith right now or not walking in faith that could indeed live this life in their own strength. It takes more than what we can conjure up, what we can somehow pull together in our own lives. I often have people also tell me, well, I'll come to Christ when I kind of get my life together. I got to pull myself up and get myself together. And when I got everything right, then I'm going to come to Christ. Well, it's never going to get right. It's never going to get right. And so it comes a realization and accepts that the, this person is circumcised of the heart, that experiences this circumcision of the heart, that this is an experience that God brings about in their life by the working of the Holy Spirit. And what happens is this person no longer speaks, seeks the praise of men. By boasting, as Paul says in the end of verse 29, but he delights in the praise that comes from God. See, religious people love the praises of men. In fact, that was the problem of Jesus' day. All the religious rulers would dress themselves in their religious attire, and they would wear their phylacteries, and they would dress in their robes, and they would dressed ceremonially with their hats and the whole nine yards so that they might receive the praises of men. And yet such a person who's experienced the circumcision of the heart and understands that it's not by a work of his flesh that he's justified with God, as we'll see here, is not looking for the praise of men, but is looking for the praise of God. Is looking for acceptance with God. Now I want you to look at chapter 3 with me. And I want you to follow with me as I read the first 20 verses of chapter 3. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. 
But if our righteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No. Not at all. It sounds like Paul is contradicting himself, doesn't it? But listen carefully. Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. Now listen to what he writes in these. These are probably to me, and I think they probably are to you too, the most riveting verses in the Scripture. As Paul paints this portrait, as it were, of sinful man, of men under sin. He pulls no punches. Listen to what he says here. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let's break this down, verse 1, very quickly. But in verse 1, he says, I want you to notice Paul's questions. He says here, then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? Now, having just humbled the Jew in the preceding verses, Paul takes an interesting turn. He speaks of Jewish advantage and a value of circumcision. And then in verse 2, after asking the question, he immediately answers the question. He says both. He says being a Jew has its advantages and circumcision is of value. Now that sounds in a sense maybe a little bit contradictory to what he's already said, but it's not. Let's see why it isn't. Paul explains, and here's his explanation. First, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Note that. So in the sense there, he says, then what advantage is there to be a Jew? He says, yes, there there is an advantage, much in every way. He says, and here's the first advantage. It was to you God spoke His oracles. It was to you God gave His truth. God gave His word. Who did Yahweh give His word to? To the Jews. That is exactly who He spoke to. 
It is to the Jew. And the oracles of God, by the way, literally are an, a, a, a phrase that Paul is using to describe the Old Testament, not just merely the law that came down from the mountain to Moses and then to the people, but also all of the Old Testament. Every ounce, every word of the Old Testament is included in the oracles of God. Paul has already told his readers the law came first to the Jews. They were first entrusted with the very words of God given to Moses from the holy mountain. It was from among the Jews that God had raised up his holy prophets to speak his word to his people. And certainly it's impossible to dismiss the special status of the people God chose and called to himself. The very gospel itself, in fact, we look back in chapter 1, verse 16, the very gospel itself for salvation to all who believe came first to who? came first to the Jew. So in that sense, there is certainly an advantage to be in a Jew and a value of being circumcision, which is the outward mark, as we've already said, of their ethnicity, of their covenant with God. And then in verse 3, Paul says, What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faith, faithlessness, nullify the faithfulness of God? So Paul readily admits the unfaithfulness of some. In other words, again, he's saying I, it's very clear that not all are, that are Jews are faithful. In fact, the pages of the Old Testament are filled with example after example of the unfaithfulness of God's people as well as God's dealing with their unfaithfulness. And we say, well, if we'd have been living back there and saw what they saw, we would have behaved ourselves. Don't speak too quickly. I'm not so sure. In fact, we have the living word given to us. Do we not know what we are to do and what we are not to do? How we are to live our lives in obedience to our Lord and to our Savior? Is that not given to us? And yet, how do we struggle ourselves with those very things? And the Bible candidly records for us, the unfaithfulness and failure of God's people. However, the point Paul brings home here is that the unfaithfulness of God's people, listen carefully, church, the unfaithfulness of God's people in no way negates God's faithfulness. I could stop there and just ponder that point. As I think back all the times in my life as a Christian, the times that I have been unfaithful to what I knew was right, to what I knew His Word clearly spoke. Yet in the midst of those things, God remains faithful. Look at what He says in verse 4. He says in verse 4, by no means, in other words, He's answering His own question. He says, does man's faithlessness negate God's or nullify God's faithfulness? He says, by no means. In other words, you might say in our vernacular, no way. No way. The question worth asking ourselves is this. Have we ever been unfaithful in our relationship with God? Now, the religious person might balk at that thought and the thought of such a thing, but we know all too well, if we are honest with ourselves and honest with God, 
that indeed we have at times been unfaithful, perhaps in different ways. But once we've been brought to our senses, which is really what's coming out of sin is, is being brought, sin is insanity. And being brought to our senses, in a sense, being, being brought out of sin is being brought once again to our senses in a godly way, convicted by the Spirit of God, brought to a place of repentance, turning from those sinful actions and turning to Christ. Christ. Once we have t- come to our senses and brought to our senses by the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we repent and return. What do we discover? Where did God go? Nowhere. Where has he been the whole time? He's been right there. Oh, but God, I'm so, I was so unfaithful. So? Not that your unfaithfulness doesn't matter, but that your unfaithfulness, unfaithfulness does not nullify his faithfulness. God does not change. And he is always there for us. How many times have I turned and gone my own way only to find myself laying flat of my face? Having come to my senses by the conviction of God and getting up and looking and finding him right there. Right there. Doesn't mean I don't have to go through the consequences. It doesn't mean I won't have to suffer for my sin. Certainly we do. But that doesn't change anything. God still remains faithful. The fact that He disciplines us proves what? That He loves us. For those whom God loves, He chastens. Those who He does not chasten are those who are fatherless. They do not have Him as their Father. But when we are chastened by Him. It is all, all it is to us is a demonstration of His faithfulness. God is saying to us, I am your Father. I love you. I care for you. I'm here. I'm faithful. If we are faithless, 2 Timothy 2, 13 says, if we are faithless, He is faithless. No. If we are faithless, listen to what Paul says. He remains faithful. You are listening to Crosswalk Radio, the Bible teaching radio ministry of Crosswalk Church in Daytona Beach, Florida. We pray that you have been edified and encouraged by today's expositional preaching through the book of Romans. We will continue this teaching next time, and we hope that you will tune in. In the meantime, we encourage you to come by our website and visit us at crosswalkdaytonabeach.org. That's crosswalkdaytonabeach.org. Thank you for listening today, and please tune in next time as we continue to teach, touch, and transform lives by faithfully proclaiming God's Word.